Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to experts, journalists, and longtime China watchers about the country's politics, society, and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some contextualization. How do the Chinese see these issues? So I hope you'll join me every other Monday. Wolf warrior. No, it's not a sequel to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Rather, the phrase is what both Chinese and Western media have used to dub a new generation of Chinese diplomats, inspired by the propagandistic wolf warrior films. Now, these diplomats are firebrands, they're unafraid to speak their mind. And you might already be familiar with the work of Zhao Lijian, the infamous foreign ministry spokesperson, who earlier this year tweeted, it might be the US army who brought the epidemic to Wuhan. Be transparent, exclamation mark. Make public your data, exclamation mark. The US owes us an explanation, another exclamation mark. Well, I think we all need an explanation for why this counts as diplomacy for the second largest economy in the world. And joining me on the podcast today is Professor Todd Hall, an expert on Chinese foreign policy at the University of Oxford. So Todd, to start with, can you explain why and how these wolf warriors have come about? Well, this this is a trend that I think you see actually goes back a bit further than the recent outbreak of, of COVID-19. And so Zhao Lijian, who's this person who's sort of become the face of this wolf warrior diplomacy, is somebody who was in Pakistan and became famous for an exchange he had on Twitter with Susan Rice. And it was a quite acrimonious exchange. And he was one of the first to really sort of be to be aggressively using Twitter. And so if you go back and you look at the amount of Chinese diplomats who had a Twitter presence and a number of followers, there weren't that many, just a handful. And among them, those who had followers, it was really only Jolly Jen who really had a large number of followers. But after this exchange, you then saw him recalled from Pakistan and then brought into the foreign ministry as a speaker for the foreign ministry. Is that a promotion? It, it, it is. It is. He was, apparently he caught somebody's attention. But this, this is also against a background where the, the current director of, of, for information at the foreign ministry, this, the real face of the foreign ministry for news um, organizations and such, Hua Chunying, before she was promoted, she published an essay in the Shui Xi and that's sort of the the, the um, study times, which is which is a central party school um, journal, saying that that diplomats really needed to have much more of this what she called dou zheng jingshen, this this fighting spirit, and so saying that the Chinese diplomacy had not really done what it needed to do to stand up for its right to speak, and that it need to do a much better job of grasping the microphone and, and telling the, the PRC story. And so this, this was sort of coming back on the back of that. And so you've seen this then. And, and then in November, at a meeting 
uh, for the 70th, 70th anniversary of the foreign ministry's establishment, if I remember correctly, Wang Yi, who's the foreign minister, also said that diplomats would need much more of this fighting spirit. So this is something that's that's has its roots in, in trends that were already in play last year. Mm-hmm. And, and do you think coronavirus has just flushed them out even more? Because the bit that I quote from Charlie Zier in the introduction really suggesting that the coronavirus came from the US military. You know, for me, that seems like it's taking this diplomacy into the area of disinformation. It feels very Russian. I mean, it's interesting because there was this attempt, it seems, if you look at CGTN and and some of these others, the Chinese news broadcasts and such, there was this attempt internationally to sort of tell the story of China doing a great job fighting the virus, of providing protective equipment to other countries, etc., telling this positive story at the outset. And then you do see this, this switch to a much more aggressive, negative turn in the media, as well as in some of the diplomatic statements. And this, I think, does is, is accelerated by that. But this also is in response to, I think, what is being seen coming out of the United States and the Twitter diplomacy or the statements being made by Trump, a reaction to a feeling that that positive story was not being received well, and in fact that the criticism was... And this is this is speculation because, of course, I don't know exactly what the leadership was thinking. But one could surmise that this is a response to the negative responses that were coming out of the United States. So almost like children on a playground, sort of the Chinese feel like you started at first. I think there is a, a a certain degree of defensiveness, but this goes that degree of defensiveness goes goes back much much farther. There's this view that that the system is sort of stacked against China in terms of the international distribution of the how should I say the the right to speak or the right to have a say that and this this is something that that dates back to I mean even the early 2000s and discourses on Chinese soft power and this notion that there is the the United States or the West more generally has sort of this control over over the international discourse and China needs to do a better job of telling its story, but that the the system is is stacked against it, and that China needs to push back. And it began with this notion that well, we need to tell our st- story better, so we need to do more in terms of broadcasting. We need, need to do more in terms of of showing what China's done. And I think now you're seeing a shift to to something that's not just telling the story better, or even or even what also previously was quite common is sort of this whataboutism, well, you're saying that, but you have these problems too, style responses to something that's much more muddying the waters, much more offensive as opposed to, to just defensive. So Todd, I think that notion of having a say in, in, in global politics is fascinating, because when we talked before we came on air about this right to speak, as it's called, this huayuquan, I'd never heard of that concept before. You told me about it. And I think it's a way that um, the West probably doesn't think about things in that way, because it does dominate discourse in a way that China sees itself as not dominating discourse. So it almost exposes a Chinese sort of insecurity that comes through as defensiveness. Although there's this interesting way, and there's this this sort of assumption that it's this Western domination in the sense of almost something that's unified. And so what is being compared, of course, is is apples and oranges in many ways, in that you have a very vibrant um, media in, for example, the United States, in, in Europe, in Japan as well, in other places, that is not necessarily state-controlled versus a notion that 
the the PRC, of course, wants to get a certain official discourse out there, and so they're they they are two different things. But there is a feeling that the the story that the PRC or the view the PRC has of its own story is not being being well represented, and this notion that well, if only we could get our story out there, then people would see. And of course, this this led, and this is something that dates back, for example, when Hu Jintao. The, the former leader of the PRC brought up soft power in 2007 in this effort to sort of push to get much increased Chinese television broadcasting available internationally and such as well. And so there have yes. been a lot of resources dumped into this. Into telling a positive story that's very much pegged on economic development, bringing up standards of living, and that sort of thing. And and Chinese culture as well, yes.、Mm. And so the story of China as as an effectively governed as as a country that's brought all these people out of poverty, as a country with a rich history, and rich culture. And so this this other story that that China want that the. Well, the the official organs <laughs> representing China wants to wants to see much more prevalent in the news, but this gets this interesting way in which soft power is conceived too, because when you see critiques within academia, the U.S., etc., in Europe as well of Chinese soft power, often there's this notion: well, China lacks soft power because. There's something about its governing system. It doesn't the the lack of freedom of speech, the lack of、um, respect for human rights, the lack of liberal values, etc. That there's something about just the nature of the PRC that means it can never have the same type of soft power as countries like the United States and such. Whereas within the PRC, there's this view that the reason that China doesn't have soft power is because it hasn't done a good enough job of. Getting its message across of of standing up for itself, of making sure that people understand it the way it wants to be understood, etc. And or even presenting itself. There was after Kung Fu Panda that the the <laughs> Disney the the I guess it was Pixar was it or that movie、yes. was became famous. There was apparently a meeting where they asked, you know, why is it that China didn't make this? How is it that you know some other country is able to take Chinese culture and, and make so much money off of it and do so well, whereas we're not able to? Of course, I think one of the more recent Kung Fu Pandas was a was then a joint <laughs> production. But this notion that that China has not done what it needs to do in terms of ability to get its message out there. Yeah, and.、Um... You know the Chinese professor、uh, Xiang Lanxing at the Graduate Institute of Geneva says that part of the belligerence in this sort of diplomatic rhetoric comes from the fact that China has drunk its own Kool Aid. So we've been talking a little bit about the insecurity that China has and the frustration that the West doesn't see it in the same way that it does. Do you think that these diplomats have also bought into this sort of very hyped up? You know, China is this. This is the Asian century. China is already the world superpower, and that's making it even more frustrated than when the West opposes it. In, in diplomatic spheres, I mean, there is this interesting notion that as you become a stronger country, you know, you should have more respect, and as you, there should be more respect for your interests, and that there should be greater, you know, acknowledgement of your accomplishments and such. There's also, I mean, there's this interesting way. I mean, you, the, the, you go back, for example, fifteen years, and you have a former speaker for the foreign ministry, Zhou Jianhua, who's writing in a book about his experiences, and he's saying, "Look, you know, we're often criticized 
in the foreign ministries, people ask us, you know, do we need calcium or say to us that we need to have calcium and why do you need calcium? You need calcium so you can have a strong backbone to stand up. And he says, but what they don't understand is that we need to keep a lower profile for the purposes of economic growth and for the purposes of what's called comprehensive power, which is this term you often see in PRC foreign policy discourse. And so for the purposes of, of amassing comprehensive power and such, once we're, once we're strong, we can talk about those things, but right now, you have to realize we need to create a good environment for China to continue growing economically. And then when you have Hua Chunying come out last year, it's actually in order to have this comprehensive power, we have to take a hold of the microphone. And so it's a shift in sort of this, this understanding, too, of, of what is what you need to do to be a great power or to, to, to take on that position with this idea that, yes, our economic strength is growing. Yes, other areas of strength are growing, but the the ability to have this sort of right to speak or this have a say is something that's not just going to come to you naturally and you have to be more aggressive in, in, in taking it. Let's talk about that shift in almost the philosophy of diplomacy in China um, a little bit more. You mentioned that that former foreign ministry spokesperson who wrote about his experiences, his anecdotes working in the foreign ministry. One part of it that really struck me was just how prescient it was. He says, and this is my (laughs) very rough translation because obviously it's in Chinese, if you say rash, angry things, if you're brash and you're stubborn, it can be easy but it doesn't solve any long-term problems. And I feel like that's quite prescient when we're talking about now because you've got people like Zhao Lijian, yes, muddying the water by putting out this conspiracy theory that the coronavirus came from America, but at the same time, it's really antagonized a lot of Western actors against it. So does it fundamentally serve China's interests? It's, I guess the question is, is what do they see as their... I mean, what do they see as what they can accomplish at the moment too, right? And so... And this is this is speculation, but one could imagine a way in which one looks out and says they've tried telling China's story in a positive fashion. They tried being defensive and using sort of this whataboutism. And what has that gotten them after coronavirus broke out? The attempts to provide protective equipment to other countries to share the PRC's experience fighting it, what it well, how it saw it was, was sharing that experience, that was simply met with a lot of criticism and negativity. And so this idea that, well, we have to push back. And there could be also the issue, what do they have to lose at the moment? Because certainly the United States has been quite aggressive in criticizing China across multiple fronts. Even that said, though, you are seeing from Wang Yi and others, you are seeing some forms of... I mean, he recently said that the United States had lost its mind and such, which wasn't the the most, um, how should I say? Diplomatic. Diplomatic of of rhetoric. But he's also published a number of things in various U.S. and other media outlets saying that the United States should, the United States and China should find find a way forward. And I think you also have to be very careful looking at the PRC system because the PRC system, you always have to look at who's saying what at what level. And these are still, the foreign ministry is certainly an important representative of PRC policy, but the speakers of the foreign ministry are still below the foreign minister. The foreign minister is still below the state councillor for foreign affairs. And the state councillor for foreign affairs is not even on the standing committee of, of the Politburo. 
I mean, it'd be quite a different thing if we saw Xi Jinping stepping out and saying this. Do you think that they they are saying these things with the blessing of people up above, though? I mean, we talked about Jal's promotion from Pakistan into a higher role after he had that tit for tat with Susan Rice. So these people are they're using Twitter as a medium. If it was really bothering those higher up in the Chinese government, surely they'd just stop them from doing that. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is you've seen an explosion of, of Chinese diplomats now going on Twitter. But to be honest, I mean, Zhao Lijian was not the first. I mean, you look at the, the Chinese ambassador to Sweden, Gui Tsongyul. He wasn't on, necessarily doing all this on social media, but he was also quite aggressive in very much in sort of that Zhao Lijian um, style as well. And so you've seen, you've seen various actors doing this and not, you know, if, they, if this was something that that the PRC government was, the, the center was not happy with. I mean, I don't think you'd see the promotions or you'd see the, the continued access to Twitter or any of these things or, or the explosion of other diplomats now, now using that, that format. And so there probably is some support for that. But then again, this is also a, a matter of, it's a series of different messages that are being sent at different levels. And so, and so you see that being sent by, by Zhao Lijian. But at the same time, you have Sui Tianhai, who's the ambassador to the United States, toning this down a little as well. But of course, he has to deal with other U.S. actors as interlocutors. And so you're having different, different messages for different audiences. But, but certainly for Zhao Lijian and others, their most immediate audience. I mean, you could say there's some element when he does his news press conferences and such, there's some element of that being for domestic audiences. But Twitter is not something that people can access in China without a, a VPN. And so this is, this is something sort of sent out to, to foreign audiences, but the, the most important audience is the one that's above him. It almost feels a bit Trumpy in the way that they use Twitter. I mean, I quoted that tweet in the introduction where there were three exclamation marks. Is that learning from the Trump playbook? Is that, are they just adapting to the social media f- format that they don't have in China? I mean, it's quite ironic, isn't it? I mean, it's, it, I think there is, it's, again, this, this, is, this is going to be speculation, I'm afraid, but certainly, certainly Trump provides a model. And it is one where there's, one could speculate that, that there's a feeling that the PRC shouldn't just sit down and take it and that it can fight back on these terms if that's the way it's going to be attacked. But again, you're seeing this at lower levels. So, so that fighting back is happening, but it's not happening at the same levels in government. Yes, it's not President Xi tweeting at Trump. Things <laughs> not tweeting. And Wang Yi is still, you know, he's, he's walking a line. And so he said some things, but he's also said some more conciliatory things as well. And again, Tsui Tianqai is, is being a little bit more of a moderate voice because, again, he has to interact with, with people on the U.S. side. But there is, I think, there is a strong possibility that there's some learning going on there. And there's also learning going on from Jolly Jen's experience. So if you're in the foreign ministry and you look around and you see that he's, he's getting the attention of people in the United States and he's getting thousands of followers on Twitter and all these things, that's also possibly something that others are learning from as well. And in terms of that story that we were talking about, that, that you know, what 
President Xi has called the China dream of this reform and opening country that's now lifted billions out of poverty, blah, blah, blah. You've Listeners have all heard the story. But while a lot of that is true, there are also parts of the story that these diplomats and government actors don't want people to talk about and they get quite offended when it's being brought up. One instance I'm thinking of is the Chinese ambassador to Britain, Liu Xiaoming, who gave an interview recently where he was challenged about Xinjiang. And here I'm going to play a clip, Todd, because I think it was quite an incredible um, interaction. But, but just what is happening here, Ambassador? I do not know. Why did you get this uh, video the, clip? The, the, and, the, these, and these have been going around the world. They've been authenticated by Western intelligence agencies and by Australian ex, uh, uh, experts who say these are Uyghur people. Let me tell you this. The uh, uh, so-called uh, uh, Western intelligence keeping up, make this a false acquisition against China. They said one million Uyghur yes. has been uh, persecuted. You know how, how big, how, how many population Xinjiang has? It's just about 40 years ago, it's a four, five million. Now it's 11 million people. And people say, you know, we impose, uh, we have a, a ethnic cleansing, but the population has doubled in the 40 years. According, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but according to your own local government statistics, the population growth in Uyghur jurisdictions in that area has fallen by 84% between 2015 and 2018. 84%. That's not right. I, said, well, that, I, I gave you an official figure. You ask me, I give you this figure as a Chinese ambassador. Todd, that just shows the difficult story that they're trying to sell when at home there are obvious problems that the West is scrutinizing. Yes, yes. I mean, it's the... And so we talked about some of the differences between the diplomacy now and the diplomacy in 15 years ago, but also what's going on with inside inside China and with Hong Kong, with Xinjiang, with Tibet, etc., is very different now than it was 15 years ago as well. And so this could too, there is also the question of whether this type of offensive diplomacy and pointing to, for example, not just these conspiracy stories about COVID, but for example, tweeting about what's going on in, in the United States with the Black Lives Matter movement, tweeting with what's going on in Portland with federal agents, etc., is also then a way to sort of shift the story or direct attention elsewhere. And the fact that those tweets themselves are getting, making news creates news about China that's not news about those issues. And what about the role of the media in all of this? Because not only do these foreign ministry spokespeople have Twitter, one other person who has Twitter is Hu Xijing, who is the editor of Global Times, which is a party-run, I mean, I guess, tabloid newspaper. He's often making very incendiary claims on Twitter. Should the media be seen as another arm of this diplomatic belligerence? Well, I, I would be careful a little with Global Times because Hu Xijing and Global Times is, is sort of an odd beast in that it's party affiliated, it's, it's under the People's Daily, but it, it's not necessarily 100% the, unlike the People's, the People's Daily is very much sort of the voice of the center. Although even within the People's Daily, you see different degrees of, how should I say, official sanction of different things that are published, because some things are published by outside commentators, some things are, are representing um, more official views. Hu Shijin, in fact, in many ways, is sort of the more aggressive fighting back. This is something that's been going on for, he's been doing this for years now, in terms of uh, 
of being much more aggressive and pushing back against what he sees as Western hypocrisy and such. And he was he was a person who, who's his sort of formative years, he he experienced the war in Yugoslavia in, the, in 1999 at the time where the, the embassy was bombed, etc. And so he was he was somebody who's who as the editor of Global Times has consistently taken a much more aggressive stance. But while the his his paper is often seen as of course being party run, and of course he would never say anything that that massively contradicts the party. I th- he he is much more of a a tabloid like voice that sometimes it's it how should I say it riffs on party lines or and and goes farther than I think you'd ever see anything go in in the People's Daily and such. But he is he does I think represent also this style of engagement that up until recently had not fully penetrated the, at least the news presentations of the foreign ministry. But that said, if you go back and you look at various ways in which various Chinese diplomats have behaved in the past, certainly they've, there have been certainly times when they haven't been afraid to mince words either. Mm. So Todd, to finish off, I feel like the impression I get from you about these wolf warriors is that they're one part of the system and there are other parts that are possibly more carrot than stick and then you've got the sort of attack dogs <laughs> on the other side too so you've got this mix and match approach would you say that's fair it's a very complex system of course and there's it's you have a center and then that center sort of radiates out the, the messages and what the center's wishes are radiate out through various different avenues and the message Takes, and so, for example, the, the aggressive voices, for example, in, in some of the media outlets, in some of the retired generals, etc., are mixed in with voices that are more conciliatory at higher levels. That, and so you have a very complex apparatus that, doesn't, that is sending messages, I think, that from, you can pick messages that are very aggressive. You can also find messages that are more conciliatory within that system. But I think the overall point that seeing this move to Twitter and social media and the more aggressive sort of offensive attempt to shape the information environment on Twitter by foreign ministry officials, that is that is something that's a new trend. Do you think it's here to stay? That's a good question. I mean, I think the the PRC system has been one that's often shown itself quite capable of of changing tack when necessary, and I think it will be a question of how they evaluate what the um, responses to this have been. I mean, you've seen various things reframed, various ways of engagement changed over time. There's also the interesting question of of whether or not this form of engagement, because of course, the PRC is not the only one taking to Twitter to um, engage in aggressive criticism, and if that form of engagement also continues from the United States as well. Professor Todd Hall, thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. If you liked it, please do leave a review and give us a rating as well. It really helps more people discover the podcast. And as ever, with any thoughts or feedback, please email podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks for listening and join us again in two weeks' time. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. 
and we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.